Welcome to the Westside Investors Network. Win your community of investing knowledge for growth. This is the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast for real estate professionals by real estate professionals. This show is focused on the next step in your career, investing. Thank you for listening. And please, if you like our content, rate us on your podcast provider. Just a quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are for educational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any shares or securities, make or consider any investments or take any other action. And now, AJ and Chris Shepard. Today, we've got Justin Brennan on the show. Justin is the CEO and co-founder of the Brennan Poll Group. He'll talk about getting into new markets and how to scale up and thrive in the market that you choose. Also, he will share some tips on finding the ideal partner and how to adequately compensate yourself as a GP or general partner. Justin Brennan, welcome to the Westside Investors Network. All right. Today, we've got Justin Brennan on with us. He is CEO of the Brennan Poll Group. Justin, real pleasure to have you on. We are excited to hear more about your company. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about yourself and a, a little bit about your background? I know that you've got several operations going on. So if you would just kind of like let our listeners know a little bit about you. Yeah, thanks, man. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on and being a part of this. So yeah, born and raised in San Diego, kind of grew up you know, third generation son of a builder developer guy that was doing single family subdivisions and some multifamily and condos, townhomes. So I kind of had that you know, luxury of seeing that from the ground up, digging ditches on my dad's job sites and learning that side of it, learning from my grandmother who was 91. And I mean, she was totally old school, man. You're going around, you know, south part of San Diego, collecting rent from her tenants until she was like 91 years old in her little S10 Chevy truck. I mean, <laughs> knocking on doors going, hey, where's my rent? That's awesome. <laughs> you know, straight probably, up old school. Probably still uh, collecting cash, right? <laughs> probably. You know, uh, money orders then, but yeah, it was probably straight cash. So I got to kind of learn the multifamily side of it a bit, but didn't know what I didn't know at that time. You know, went to school, did all that stuff, came out of that and, you know, went to work as a title rep of all things in the title business in the early 2000s. And then came out of that and went to school for graduate stuff, came out of that and then started working with my father's companies after I'd kind of done it on my own a bit. And then the financial crisis hit, <laughs> which we can all recall if you've been through that in 2008 you know, through 2010, that was the hardest part of it. You know, watching my dad's companies completely have to consolidate and go through that. It was so violent for everybody at that time, as I'm sure everybody can recall that had gone through it and learned a, a ton. I mean, I always say, you know, sometimes in the, in the moments of suffering, greatness is born <laughs> and you go through some of the toughest times and it teaches you what not to do in the future. So you don't make the same mistake twice. Now, thankfully, I mean, it hit our family, but it didn't, I mean, there was a lot of people that were going bankrupt all over the place, right? Especially developers and stuff yeah. like that. Thankfully, that didn't happen, but we had to really, you know, hunker down like a lot of people did and then get, you know, creative and deal with, you know, cash the best you could to kind of ride through the tough time to get to the upside. But that allowed me to actually, a couple of things is I was mentioning Tom Ferry earlier, briefly. He's a real estate coach, if you guys aren't familiar with him. I was at a conference in Anaheim, California, and, you know, 5,000 realtors in a room. And, you know, he comes out on stage and he's rah-rah on everybody up and he comes out, he's like, ah, rah-rah, you know, who here wants to own rental income property? You know, and all the realtors' hands go up in the air and they're all excited and <laughs> he's like, oh, great, great, great. You know, who here, this is 2008, mind you, 
yeah. who here can financially afford rental income property right now? Right. And like, he's like crickets, right? Like 90% <laughs> of the hands go down. They're like, okay. He's like, guys, you're missing the entire secret. He says, you don't have to have a single dime to own rental income property. He says, you just need to have friends that have the money to own rental income property. Cause he says, you're the realtor. You know, you have the knowledge, the ability, you can find the deals, underwrite the deals, put them together, property manage them, run the renovations, run all the stuff, right? You have like the sweat. And if you can't pull the loan and you don't have the equity, then you need to go find somebody who does, who's not in real estate, right? Who can't necessarily do what you can do. So you add value to them. They're adding value to you, partnered up and away you go. And at that time I was broke, but I knew we needed to start buying property because I'm like, I was always told, right? <laughs> in many of the downturns is when all the wealth is made, right? It's when like the blood is in the streets. Wait for the blood in the street, right? Blood in the street, blood in the street. I just knew, I'm like, we got to go buy some properties, right? And I still kick myself, we should have bought more. Right? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> so, but you learn a lot, right? So anyhow, I had a friend from graduate school, Christopher Poli, that he was a tech guy, not in real estate, well-established, had good income, could pull down the loans, had the capital, the initial equity for down payments. And we had talked about it, but now we need to actually finalize it. And we put a company together, the Brenham Pulley Group. And that started in 2010 or 2009. And then we bought our first property, which was a $100,000 condo in Murrieta, California. And we put $25,000 down and took a $75,000 loan. <laughs> You know, cash flowed like 13% cash on cash return at that time. It was unbelievable. Yeah. And I think we annualized that thing around a 27% annualized return by the time we sold it for, you know, 300 and something thousand. But that's how it started, literally. And then it went into a two to four unit property, then a four unit property, then a three unit, then a four unit. And then we started to say, okay, we want to get it a little larger into the five to 10 unit space. So we kind of went there. And then you run into the problem that a lot of, you know, real estate entrepreneurs run into where, you run out of your own money. <laughs> so now it's all about, you know, maybe, you know, leveraging other people's money. And we started bringing in investors. And then that's kind of where we started to get into a little larger assets and held on to that stuff until really 2016, 2017. And then realized, hey, we need to like, grow more, but we can't really do it in Southern California. It's becoming too expensive. So we need to go out of state. And that's kind of what started the initial thought of going out of state, you know, syndicating apartments, getting into bigger stuff. But that's a whole other ballgame, right? When you're getting into the logistics and the operations of that. So that's what teed up a syndication conference. Are you guys familiar with Dave Lindahl by chance? No, haven't heard of Dave Lindahl. He's a real estate coach for investors and syndicators and all that stuff. So I had gone to a conference out in Boston, Massachusetts with a few other folks, like 4,000 investors and people there, and had a chance to meet a lot of people, learn the different markets, the ones that we were interested in, and that teed up Kansas City, Missouri. And that was kind of that first branch into that 20 to 50 unit space. We went into Kansas City, Missouri and bought a few there and have had great success with those. And then, of course, it's just that natural progression of, okay, now we realize the economies of scale in this business are really in the 90 plus unit space. Yeah. And start to see benefits and drawbacks of different size of units and graduating into it. So um, it was teed up. Justin, when you guys were growing, you know, you started out with a single condo and you built it up, small multifamily. What did you find 
most fun and like what you really enjoyed the most, like in that initial growth phase? The operational side, kind of trying to find that intrinsic value in a property, whether it's from, you know, doing some improvements or renovations to the units to raise, you know, the rent, right, value add, or through the operational side of making sure the expenses were as low as possible and most efficient, right, and the revenue so you can get the most cash flow. So trying to find, like, at the end of the day, how can I increase the NOI, right, the net operating income on a property? Because that is where it's all at, because it's a 20 to 1 ratio. Most people are trying to learn how this works. It's a 20 to 1 ratio rate. on your <laughs> NOI. So let's say I can increase that NOI $100, right? That's $2,000 in value that I get to add to the building. By raising it $100, I can get $2,000 in value. And that's presuming, say, a 5% cap rate. Right. Yeah. Well, that's the exact formula is the 5% cap rate is 20 X. <laughs> right. I always look at that as, okay, hundred dollars. Okay. A thousand dollars. If I can get it $10,000, okay. That's 200 grand. Like I'm just trying to find the ways for the NOI because I know that's how the values justified right down the road for either refinancing or for selling it. And that's the opportunity. It's like when you purchase a property, knowing that there's something that you can do, whether it's lowering the expenses or adding value to the property that's perceived as, you know, that it's better by the future tenants, that's, it's going to make it, you know, every dollar is 20 on that NOI. So yeah, you know, it's it's a great formula for any future entrepreneur that is out there. If you're buying a two to four unit deal or you're buying a hundred unit deal, NOI, 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 (laughs) you know? So at some point when you move from like residential to commercial, like lending wise, the appraisals kind of change a little bit. And, you know, basically for us, one to four units, it's all based on the sales comparison approach. But I'm buying a five unit property right now and it's like a mix of both. It's so frustrating because, <laughs> but you know, once you get to like eight units, then it's full. You're going to use the income approach. The income approach. Yeah. Which it's nice once you finally get there because, but transitioning from the sales comparison approach to the income approach, like it's a totally different game. Yeah. Cause then it's all about the property and it changes you as the underwriter, right? The guarantor, the borrower. Yep. Because what was interesting for me to find out going through this process is the bigger the deal, once you get going and you have some, you know, some history behind you, the bigger the deal, the easier it is to get the money. Yeah. The less they care about you. And I'm like, so let me get this straight. Cause we had the issue on the Oaks deal in San Antonio that we just closed. You know, we had plenty of people that wanted to write us $10 million checks, some private equity firms and so forth because of the partners I had, we had teed up with. They're like, you know, it's just, it's a little too small. I said, if you can bring me a deal and we can write you a $10 million check, we're all in. I'm like, so let me get this straight for a minute. <laughs> Won't give me a $3 million check, but you'll give me a $10 million check? They're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Cause it just, there's more economies. It makes more sense. Like there's more pot, you know. Less stuff. paperwork, more profit. <laughs> and it just, so you start to realize how that game works and how you know, the big money coming out of the different areas of Wall Street and so forth, right, that are helping fund these from the debt as well as the equity are looking at it from just an economies of scale type of thing. And that's why those bigger deals are more competitive 
certainly because there's just less of them, but like there's more money out there for those deals. So it's easier to get a loan. And, you know, now that the spotlight is kind of on them, there's just a lot of operators who want to move into that space. Yeah. And, you know, the lenders are really looking at the property, right? So they're underwriting the asset unless you as the borrower, right? It's a non-recourse loan nine times out of 10, whereby meaning you're not on the hook for it per se, unless there's some bad boy stuff in fraud, but you're not on the hook for it and they're really underwriting the asset. So that way you as the borrower can go in, you only have to show a certain amount of liquidity, right? That's reasonable, but not say, you know, a full underwriting as though you were buying a home right? Where they're dissecting you upside down and turning you inside now, you're basically providing a financial statement and they're taking it that that's accurate and here's your money. <laughs> yeah. It's funny how it's more difficult to get a loan for a duplex than it is for a 150 unit apartment complex. It's unbelievable. Like it's unbelievable. <laughs> I was astonished when that was the case, but it does make some sense in a way now that I get it because they're looking at it like, hey, you don't perform, we'll just take the asset back. And now we have an asset that's a cash flowing asset typically, and we can go ahead and do other things with it, right? But still, you know, they'll take your equity with it. <laughs> yeah, so. right. You know, I know that we've said that it's easier to get these larger loans and whatnot, but Justin, are you the, I mean, they typically want like a guarantor or someone that has some sort of experience. Are you that person or are you partnering with someone that's got that type of experience? Yeah. So as we kind of graduated through it and we went from say the small stuff that was easy and then five to 10, 20 to 50, I definitely had that experience to execute on that. And then, you know, even though I had the experience with my family a bit, in that larger space, I personally hadn't had it. So, so let's say, for example, the Oaks, while I technically didn't need somebody else, the banks would have liked to have somebody else. So I had teamed up with Rudy Medina and those guys with Next Space Development because they have a half billion dollars under their belt and experience, right? So then coupled with us, you know, we have that syndication experience, construction experience, out-of-state experience, and then obviously the financial backing because really what they're going to look for in terms of the underwriting as a borrower is one, yes, the resume, right? That you've actually done this before or you're teamed up with somebody that has. Number two, let's say you're going out and getting an $11 million loan, hypothetically for a minute. They're going to want to see 1% of that in a liquidity fashion, meaning between the guarantors, the borrowers, at least a million dollars in net worth, right? Between them, Right. So that's kind of what they're looking for, you know, on a liquidity factor from the financial statements, which wasn't hard on our end, but for someone that's brand new, unless you have that financial statement to be able to show that, right, in terms of net worth, and then having some resume to show that, hey, you've actually done this before and you know how to operate, the bank's typically not going to give you a loan, right? Even though they're operating, they're looking at the property, they're still going to make sure you use the operator can execute or you've had some sort of history for it. And now here's a word from our sponsor. Get things done while you're on the move. Learn more about working with a virtual assistant through offsite professionals. It's a great way to get all the things done that you need to get done. Have freedom in your time and streamline your life by automating your business. Stop spending time on the tasks that you can delegate and start spending more time on your superpower. Call us today at 503 506-3177 or visit our website at offsiteprofessionals.com. 
for our listeners, like how did you go about finding those partners or those guarantors that would kind of be essentially like a credit partner, right? It was kind of... Yeah. I mean, so I've, I'd known Rudy since I was like eight years old, okay. right? So that relationship was there, but you know, he was doing other things and I was doing other things. But what ends up happening is weird. I mean, they say like the law of attraction and you, you put it out to the universe and you start talking about it on social <laughs> and you say what you want to do and you put all this stuff out and people are paying attention to this kind of, they're just watching kind of what you're doing. And, you know, I'd met a bunch of people at that syndication conference, you know, out in Boston back in 2018. So there were some potential partners there that were in the areas that we were looking for so that I could call out to if I needed a co-general partner on the deals. Yeah. And then as I was kind of going out there and growing, I had Rudy Medina reached out to me and he says, Hey, like we're looking to do stuff out of state. We just need somebody operationally who's kind of doing the groundwork and to set up all the operations, right? Which I've been doing for three years. We need somebody that's on that. So then we can kind of come in with our balance sheet, team up. You know, you run the logistics. We kind of have the balance sheet along with your guys' balance sheet and away we go. And that's kind of what started that and allowed us to get into the bigger space to where now, I mean, we're looking at, you know, 150, 250 type unit deals. That's pretty exciting. So, I mean, but the initial, I guess, model that you started with the Brennan Pole group, you know, the first condo, it's like, we just need somebody to put in the sweat equity and we've got the money. Yeah, it starts with one. And I tell anybody, like, if you're looking to start, start with one, right? Don't overthink it, right? Get into one property, one rental and, if you have the ability to bring in the capital, sign on the loan and run the operations, then you don't need anybody else. But if you can do only one or the other, then choose it and then go partner with somebody who can bring the other you know, value to you. Especially if you're a realtor, for example, I mean, don't go partner with another realtor, right? Like kind of like what I did, I partnered <laughs> with a tech guy. I was the real estate, right? So I added value, he added value and boom, because then I can do things he can't, he can do things I can't. There's a value add to that relationship. Whereas if it's kind of like two real estate agents teaming up, you've got to be somewhat careful that you can actually add value to each other, right? I mean, I've seen that where you get two real estate people teaming up and then it's kind of like, well, then you start picking at who's doing what, who's doing this, I'm doing this, or you know that type of stuff where there has to be that value add to one another. Yeah, some of the best partnerships that we've had have been with partners that are just not in real estate whatsoever. And those portfolios have done quite well and partners are very happy. But Justin, I actually think that the way that you started by finding a partner, like you started growing that muscle of building partnerships and figuring out, you know, what the best roles for each partner are. And it essentially gave you that skill, which has transformed into huge, awesome partnerships where each partner is adding a ton of value. And I honestly think that that might be better than starting with your own money and doing it all yourself. Yeah. And I mean, exactly. I always recommend it's a good yin and yang. I mean, cause even Christopher and I, I mean, we've you know, butted heads on certain things, but in a good way, right? Because he's mm-hmm. bringing a different perspective to it. And then I bring mine and then we kind of reconcile it and we, and we go. So it's kind of nice to have that bouncing board, especially from somebody, I mean, he comes at it from a much 
higher level because he's in the tech industry and dealing with VCs, people out of Silicon Valley and like just a different mechanism for branding, marketing, like the corporate mindset, how these people, these really, really big money people are looking at things because he can help attract that into what we're doing. But he says in order to do that, it has to be positioned this way. And you have to see it from this way. And if you want to attract that, it's got to be a certain way. So he's helped position the company to where we can start attracting that, both from these tech guys who want to invest and they need to invest for write-offs, but they also are going to look at your company in a certain perspective and you need to have all your ducks in a row. Interesting. AJ, do you have a couple of questions? Yeah, I'm backing up and I'm curious about like getting into KC and then getting into Texas. Like, how did you identify getting into those new markets or like what was attractive about it? Was it a partnership that you may have already had in those areas? Like I know that you said you, you partnered up with your credit guys, but, and they wanted to get into other markets too, but like, how did you identify those new markets? Yeah. So I'd never thought about Kansas city <laughs> initially <laughs> because we were out at the conference and I'd run into a few folks and one gentleman was a broker from Kansas city, Kerry strong. Yeah. Great guy. And he says, you know, Hey, you need to look at Missouri. You need to look at Kansas city. I'm like, Kansas city. He's like, yeah, just trust me. Come out. I'll show you trust. And I said, okay. So I took a flight out and I'm not kidding you. When I landed in Kansas city, having come from San Diego and watching how downtown San Diego had grown with all the you know, early 2000s with the skyscrapers and everything going up and then the ballpark and all that stuff in downtown San Diego. And I drove through Kansas City and it literally reminded me of the early 2000s in San Diego because they had cranes everywhere in Kansas City. Light rail systems going, all this development. I mean, you could literally see the path of progress. So I'm like, oh my gosh, like, wow. So then of course you dive into the economics of an area First thing we're looking at is population growth, right? We want that north of 1% a year. We want job growth north of 2% a year. So those are the two things we're kind of looking for first. And then the diversity of the economy, right? Who's actually supplying the jobs, right? And making sure it's diverse enough where you don't have one major employer like a Walmart running the show in an area. So there's Fortune 500 companies all over the place in Kansas City. And it's a major hub because it's dead central in the United States, like right in the middle of the United States. So that was huge from just the Fortune 500 companies. And then you realize the redevelopment that's going on, the path of progress, all of these things. So dynamically, it was a great market and it's a growing market. And it was kind of a secret at that time a bit. It's not a secret anymore. <laughs> it's amazing to see what's happened just with the valuations and the cap rates since, of course, we bought. But that's what drove it. It was initially getting in there, then seeing population growth, jobs, path of progress, the economy university systems are a key component to what we look for, right? So having a good diverse university system is key because that's going to drive all kinds of you know, student population, but also just educational side of things. So that's going to help with jobs, employment, wages, growth, stuff like that. So when you bought in, was it 2017, 2018? Uh, uh, yeah, the end of 2018, 2019 in Kansas City. Yep. Do you want to share what you were paying per unit? And then what rents were and then what they are now. <laughs> oh, yeah. Because it makes me look super smart, even though it was <laughs> So our first deal we bought in there was a 30-unit deal we bought for 2.2. So I want to say that was about 80-something thousand a unit. 75, yeah. 
Yeah. So now it's worth about, we've renoed it and put in about 300 grand into it. It's worth about, you know, 120 a door now on that one, give or take. Nice. Uh, and then we have another one that I'm still baffled how we got it. I mean, we literally stole the property. It was a, a 31 unit. It was actually a 30 unit that we turned into a 31 unit and we bought it for a million five ten. Wow, 50K. And it was original owner since 1970s that had built the property in fair condition, right? Just original and classic units. Exterior was in fair condition, but the interiors were just old, original stuff. But it was situated within a medical kind of area in Kansas City. And there was redevelopment coming up around it near Brookside and so forth. And I mean, I didn't even ask too many questions because we were getting it like, 56,000 a door. I don't even know what it was. It was so cheap that I knew I'm like, this is a no brainer. Like I just signed the papers. Don't even expect them. <laughs> <laughs> and now we just had an appraisal done in December for 3.6 million. Wow. That's great. Yeah. And we put about, I think we're all in on that thing because we're totally renovated now. Full reno at about 2.1 all in with all the reno budgets and everything in. So we're planning to do our cash out refi, right? Because we're at year three and refi the property, pull the initial equity out, return it to all the investors. And then we're going to hold for another few years on that property. So the plan is to keep it, you know, for up to 10-ish years or? No, we'll probably get a Freddie loan, but we'll do a five-year Freddie loan and we'll do a step-down prepay on it. So yep. be able to get two or three years interest only on that, probably two years interest only, do a step down prepay, maybe sell it in another three years where our prepay is about 1%, maybe, maybe 2% at that point, but that'll be fine and get into a fixed rate you know, loan and just sit tight. I mean, you know, prepay should be fine as long as it's a step down because it'll go from like 5%, 4, 3, 2 on that. So it'll be around 2% when we sell it, which, you know, you'll be making so much profit, it won't really matter. So when you guys acquired the property, what type of loan did you get to acquire it? Yes, you do a bridge loan. So what ends up happening with a lot of these value add properties where you're going in to acquire the asset and then have a certain amount of funds for renovating the property, they call it, you know, you go flip houses, essentially flipping an apartment building in a way, right? So you go flip a house, it takes you maybe 90 to 120 days from start to finish, with an apartment building, it's say 24 months on a reno on average. So you have two parts to that acquisition loan when you're doing an apartment complex. So part of it is the acquisition side. So let's say you're buying a million five property, you know, they're going to give you I don't know, a million two loan or something, hypothetically, whatever it is, 75%. And then let's say you have another 450,000 in rehab. They'll actually give you that as kind of a draw. And allow you to draw on those funds, which will increase the overall balance of the loan as you go through the rental process. So you're not paying interest on the money you're not drawing yet. Does that make is, sense? Is that a local lender that you're doing that with? Someone that like that one, yes. But yeah, for that one, yes. But like, say the one in Texas that we just did, it was a total capitalization on that property of about sixteen point five million. Okay, yeah. and that includes closing costs, reno, acquisitions, everything. Right. We got about a $12 million loan, right? But that includes about the acquisition portion of that loan is about 9.6. So you got another, you know, X million in the rental portion, right? From a bridge debt lender. 
Yeah. So we're drawing on that, you know, two point something million, right? As we're renovating the project, and then we'll, you know, we're only paying interest on nine point seven right now, and then as we draw, we'll pay interest as the balance goes up. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. So interesting. I've got a question for you. Like this one in KC, you say you're going to refinance and return investors' equity and that sort of stuff. From what I've understand and typically know of, like value add syndication, like. As you hold the property longer, the returns for the actual syndicator like plateau or even go down just because of the way the metrics work with paying out and you know doing a split over a certain IRR. We always kind of like battle with like, well, we want to you know be true to our investors and what we told them we're going to hold it for five years. Whereas like if we sold it right now, we could juice their IRR and we'd all make a lot more. Not we'd all make a lot more money, but we'd make more money sooner. Yeah, and, it's, and we've looked at that analysis on, say, that deal that you're talking about to see, does it make sense to sell it and just cash out? Yeah. Or does it make sense to do the refinance? Because based on this asset, we're going to literally return every single penny someone put initially in. So now you're playing with house money. Yeah. Right? And keep in mind, that cash out refi is tax-free. Yep. So they're getting all their money back tax-free. Plus, we're going to return a little extra pop on that to fill up their preferred return, plus a little juice on that because of the kind of where we bought it at. And then now, we're still going to keep the leverage around no more than 70%, ideally 65 mm-hmm. Yeah, because then that allows us to go interest only for full term. So let's say we went out and got a five-year Freddie Mac loan, right? And if we keep that debt loan to value at 65% or less, then Freddie Mac will allow us to go interest only that entire five years. So now the cash on cash returns, right, start popping up. So the question is, can I return all the equity to investors, get a little bit of extra on top of that and still stay at 65% loan to value, right, interest only. And what does that cash flow look like for the next three years on that property, you know, presuming certain variables, right, increasing rents and so forth. And then now they've gotten all their money back. And now it's basically playing house money on these returns, right? So now I can juice these cash on cash returns at, you know, 10 plus percent, right? So now their IRRs and all those things are getting better too, because all their money has been returned. So now they're playing with house money, right? And we're fixed rate and we're interest only. So you're not paying the principal and interest on it because I don't really care. We're at 65% loan to value. So yeah. I'm not trying to pay down debt. I mean, let's keep the debt because now I'm going to get debt at, 3.5, 4% fixed. So I might as well just do that, return all the money and get a nice cash on cash return on an interest only loan for the next you know three to five years. Does that so, make sense? Yeah, I guess it's just the way that you calculate the IRR. Like is right. the IRR calculated at disposition with the initial investment or are you yes. taking two separate calculations of like the IRR and then the refinance and then the IRR after the refinance? Correct. So we're taking all the cash that's distributed, right? So yeah. if you take your initial investment of say a million dollars, then you're getting your quarterly distributions, right? And then you have this refinance event. So that's a big pop in cash. That's going to be calculated into this number. Sure. And then of course you have cash flow, and then you have another capital event when you sell it. So you take all that capital and then obviously annualize it, and there's your IRR. Yeah. Yeah. I guess what I'm saying is that at year three, you're IRR would be higher and more Big time. than it would be at like year 10. And so what I'm saying is a lot of yep. syndicators will say, you know, let's sell it. 
return and then you know their splits are some people's splits are, are pretty high after a certain point and it yeah. makes more sense to return the investor's money back and then go find another deal and do a cost segregation and and sure. keep that churning quicker yeah and i've always yeah. wondered like what can we do as syndicators because chris and i are a buy and hold company too like we yeah. want to hold on to the real estate manage it operate it and like do really well but like we've been trying to figure out like how do we compensate ourselves adequately because it is in our best interest to like sell it early and sell it quickly. Sure. So we always invest alongside the limited partnership yeah. as well as be the general partner. So that way we're getting a preferred return as well as the benefits as a limited partner as well. Right. So you kind of get both sides of it and you should do that. So that way you're not having to wait till the end game to get, you know, you paid out. So you're getting kind of both sides of the deal and you have the right to do that. So we do that in every single one of our deals and invest right alongside the LP partners. And then of course we have the general partnership split as well. Another thing that we do is we always try and buy three, sell one. I was always told this is where kind of the experience comes in from Rudy Medina. He's like, buy three, sell one, buy three, sell one. So you're always accumulating assets, but then you're always disposing of an asset. So you're getting some liquidity events, but then you're, you're doing four deals a year. Just yeah, ideally. I mean, buying three and selling one. <laughs> buy three, sell one, buy three, sell one. And so that's kind of my mentality now is to let's go acquire three, plan on selling one or having a capital event, one of the two, on at least one of the assets a year. If we're kind of presuming, you know, use that formula, buy three, sell one. So for every four deals, it's buy three, sell one, right? I have not heard that one before, but I like it. Well, I had neither until, but that's how you kind of get to, I don't know if you know who Georgia Brew is by chance. Do you know who No. So you should LinkedIn this guy on Instagram, but LinkedIn for sure. He was a guy I met actually at the syndication conference. So it's George G, J-O-R-G-E, George, and then a brew is A-B-R-E-U. And so to give you why you need to follow this guy. He's an engineer by trade, so super analytical, very logistical mind. I met him at the David Lindell conference, him and his wife back in 2018. We both were at very similar points. I was getting started with it. He was getting started with it. He had like a couple hundred units at that point. He's gone from that point to where he's at at the end of this year at 5,500 units under ownership. Wow. I mean, the guy is literally hockey pucking. Just on steroids. Start, it starts with a few larger deals, right? And then you yeah. start to realize how the game works and all of a sudden it's boom, 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 boom. And then it just, it scales. So it's pretty, very impressive. And then he has a construction company. So his construction company renovates all his deals, right? And then they have all this operational prowess. So very, very sharp guy. I just ran into him at the National Multifamily Housing Conference out in Orlando. I hadn't seen him in years. And we've been kind of corresponding on social media and stuff, but very, very sharp guy definitely somebody you want to follow and connect with. So he's definitely starting to play in the big game. Yeah. That's something I've always struggled with. Like, you know, we're kind of mom and popping it right now. Like we started out with one house and now we're like slowly building up or buying a 30 unit in a couple months. And yeah, I mean, it's exciting, but like at that path of growth, like you kind of are going to be bumping into institutional, you know, debt, like, institutional buyers, like you're going to be competing against them. And it does just kind of turn into a little bit of a different game. Big time. Yeah, and, I know it totally does. And he's at that level I mean, where he's closing. I mean, now 
it's like anything you, you start in kind of that B and C class and now he's buying a class properties, right? But he's still in the B and C too, but he just closed on a 400 unit A class in Dallas, Texas. Right. And so, I mean, they're doing big time deals, you know, partnering with a lot of people. He'll co-GP on deals. I mean, very sophisticated guy and has good operations in place. So it's quite impressive to watch I mean, what he's been able to pull off in just a few years and scale so quickly. So if I can pull it off, that'd be great. <laughs> I don't know. We'll see. The problem I don't think is money now. It's deal flow, right? Yeah. Like yep. We have access to the debt for sure. And we have access to a private equity on top of accredited investors, right? Like your folks and you guys and so forth, you know, pool of good quality accredited investors who entrusted us that we're going to execute compiled with large private equity guys who will write a $10 million check. So if we need to go raise 15 or 20 million in equity, we could pull a few million from our accredited investor group and then pull the rest from a big you know, check writer. And then we bring in a portion of it as well. So, cause we're typically bringing in 10% of the cash on every deal, us directly as the GP. Yeah, us too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. And you can even send it. I mean, as the deal gets bigger, you'll tend to maybe even syndicate that GP, the general partnership side. So that way, you know, you're not having to write a $3 million check. Maybe you're still writing a half million dollar check and then you can syndicate that other side of it too. Yeah. Well, awesome. We're probably getting to that time where we need to get to our last four questions. So I'm going to start us off with the first one. What's one piece of advice you would give to your 25-year-old self? Woo! Dream big, man. I mean, don't... I know it's kind of a cliche because you hear people say this, but yeah, don't undercut your ability. I think everybody really underplays what they're capable of. They also underplay what they can accomplish in 12 months. A lot of times they overplay what they think they can accomplish in five years. But I would say absolutely dream big, think big, and don't funny yourself into kind of this mindset of, oh gosh, they're doing it, I can't, right? Don't live through the opinions of others. Certainly don't live through the Instagram posts. <laughs> right? I mean, you see, well, because people see other people doing things and then you're like, oh gosh, like, no, like you're on your path, stay focused, put the blinders on and, you know, don't live through the opinions of others because there's plenty of people that'll tell you, you can't do it. And it's usually, it's going to be the people closest to you. It's going to be family and friends and people closest to you because they're trying to protect you, or at least they think they are right. And hold you close. Like, oh no, like, don't make that mistake. Don't do that. Can't go there. Can't do that. Right. But that's just because they either are insecure about their own situation or they want to try and protect you, but they're really just holding you back from greatness. Holding you back from greatness. I love it. <laughs> All right. What was your first entrepreneurial endeavor? Hmm. I had a little mini car washing business. I guess that counts, right? And yeah, uh, yeah. I think how old I was. I think I was, I want to say it was early teenage years. I'd start, you know, going around cleaning the neighbor's cars for like 10, 15 bucks. That was my kind of entrepreneurial days. I can't think what else I did. We did some online stuff as well, but I'd say the car washing business was the first. I did valet parking, but I worked for a company then, so that doesn't really count. <laughs> I had to drive some cool cars, you know. Do, but, I, do you drive a cool car today? It's funny. I'm a Jeep guy. Yeah. I've always been a Jeep guy. I mean, I've had a Range Rover. I mean, those are great cars, but then I'm, I took it in to get service one time. And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> This thing's like $500 to change the oil. This is crazy. So yeah. I've had six Jeep Grand Cherokees. You know, so what I do now is I'll go buy like the nicest Jeep Grand Cherokee that's like loaded up, right? 
and yeah. it literally has all the features that are like say a nice Range Rover. It just doesn't yep. have a brand, but the thing doesn't break down. And if it does break <laughs> down, it's cheap to fix and oil to change is like a hundred bucks versus 500. Right. Yeah. And you know, the air conditioning doesn't break every week and the computer system doesn't go out every week and stuff like that. So I've always been a, just get a nice Jeep Grand Cherokee and load it up. I'm on number six, probably going to seven. Nice. Wow. That wasn't my third question, but my oh, third question yeah. is. My favorite car is a Targa. Does that count? <laughs> 911 Targa. I should say a 922 Targa Porsche if you had to pick one. Nice. Yeah, you just said mini car washes and working for a valet. I figured it was maybe something, that, maybe a car affinity. But our third question for you is, how has your formal and informal training shaped your journey? The formal education is really gave me a good base, you know, because I did finance at Pepperdine University for undergraduate in business and finance. That kind of gave at least a baseline, just understanding the structure of profit and loss statements and balance sheets and accounting, some basic business structure. And then, you know, I had the chance to go to the Berlin Moore School of Real Estate in San Diego. So I'm really fortunate to have done that. And that really taught me how to underwrite properties correctly. So that was key, at least from the books. But what's funny is they brought in cohort professors who were actually developers and apartment guys and like boots on the ground guys, right? And it's funny because you have the professor in there teaching us all the book stuff. And then they say, okay, we're bringing in so-and-so who's an actual developer, builder, multifamily guy. He's going to kind of give it to you real for the day. And it's funny because they'd come in and like the professor would leave the room and this developer guy would be like, listen, don't listen to anything the professor just told you. (laughs) here's the real how it gets done right here's the gnarly behind the scenes we're gonna get real here and he'd lay it down or they would lay it down and then you're like wow like okay you got the book smarts but man you got to have that street smarts as they say right and have that boots on the ground reality because there's a difference between the two for sure oh for sure all right our final question what was your biggest mistake and what did you learn Biggest mistake, not fully understanding costs when you go in to acquire a multifamily asset and not understanding that there's fixed costs regardless of the size of the asset. Meaning whether you're buying a 20 or 30 unit deal, there's a lot of fixed costs involved in that acquisition as there is with a hundred unit from legal, accounting, operational, some just fixed costs that are almost identical. And so that's when you start to realize the economies of scale kind of start at 90 plus units. And while there's great opportunity in the, in the smaller stuff, you need to make sure that you're taking in all the costs into account. And then also making sure that you're prepared to manage the managers. Because everybody thinks, oh, I can go buy a 30 unit out of state property and I'm going to hire a professional property management firm. And this is going to be great. <laughs> so you said, you mentioned fixed costs. Do you want to just share what, you know, those costs were and like, just dive into that a little yeah, bit like, deeper? Yeah. I mean, like you're going to spend like legal costs, for example, there's two sides to the legal cost. There's your cost as a borrower, right? Preparing legal documents and so forth. And then you're going to pay the legal costs of the lender. that's going to give you the loan. Right. And a lot of those are fixed. You know, So that can range from 25 to 75,000, right? Depending on the size of the deal and how many partners are involved. The due diligence cost, it's you know at least 20 grand, 30 grand, regardless of the size of the deal. And that's for all your inspections that you're gonna go through. You know, your capital raising costs, you got your closing costs, you have, I mean, there's kind of a litany list of them, but you know, a lot of it is in the due diligence, legal, 
accounting side of things. I mean, like tax returns. Tax returns are going to be similar whether you got a 100-unit deal or a 20-unit deal. Yeah. Right? It's very similar. So there's just a lot of fixed costs that are involved that you think you account for them. And I thought I did. And I did pretty good, but there was a mistake there for sure. I think we were able to recover from it. But then, yeah, I think the biggest thing was the, you need to be prepared to manage the managers. Because you got to realize when you are hiring, whether it's a big deal and they're on site, where they're literally there every day, and you can pick up the phone and call your leasing center and your leasing staff and your maintenance staff, and they're literally there focused on your asset every day. Or they're an offsite property management firm, right? Where it's a 20, 30 unit deal. They're not on site every day. They're offsite. Well, that just requires a little more attention on your end because the only way those property management companies make any money is they have to then what? Get lots of units, spread themselves somewhat thin, right? So there's no way they're going to watch your assets. You can't get upset at them per se. You just need to be prepared that you're going to have to be on them like white on rice and there's no way around it. So you have to be an asset manager managing the managers and just know that that's going to take time and that's another job for you because otherwise things get missed. They don't get the attention and so forth. So that's great advice. So just be prepared to manage the managers, you know, not just be like, yeah, I hired this great property management firm and they're taking care of everything. <laughs> you know, it's just, oh, yeah. just no way. There's no way. And so you have to be diligent and be on it. Unfortunately, there's no way around it. So build in asset management fees. We charge 1%, you know, and build that in. So you have a little bit of source to pay for a little bit of your time. But yeah. trust me, it doesn't even you know, <laughs> come close to paying for your time, you know? Yeah. Well, Justin, it's been a real pleasure having you on. If our audience wants to get a hold of you, or I think you have a new podcast going on, do you want to tell our audience about how to get a hold of you and how to listen in on what you're doing? Sure. Yeah. Thanks. You can go to brennanpoli.com. That's our multifamily website. So that's my last name, Brennan, B-R-E-N-N-A-N. And then Poli is Christopher Poli's last name. That's P-O-H-L-E. So it's brennanpoli.com. Has all our contact information there. So feel free to reach out. And then, yeah, I think I was talking to you before we came on here. You know, everybody has a podcast. (laughs) I'm not sure. But we just didn't want to start one where we're just talking and interviewing people about success and this stuff. We actually wanted to dive a few layers deep on it and create a podcast whereby we interview super successful people, but with kind of the premise behind it that we're going to go a few layers deep and ask you about your passions, your beliefs, charities, foundations, things that kind of drive you and your why to accumulate wealth, right? And the abundance to then give back, right? So we named the podcast Abundance to Give and we'll interview very successful entrepreneurs, but then rather just talking about, hey, how'd you do it? We want to say, hey, listen, talk to me about a charity you really love and why, and why does giving back and helping others and leaving an impact on the world help then accumulate wealth and abundance for you and then kind of just creates a cycle, right? And then all kinds of fun stuff. Have you ever seen Mr. Beast on YouTube by chance? Have not. Do you guys have kids by chance? No kids. No kids? Okay. So if he's still around, which he will be. So this guy, I'll finish off on this. So this guy started, I think, five years ago, six years ago, with like 1,200 subscribers, right? Nothing, you know, anything exciting. And he was doing normal videos where he's playing video games and showing people on video, like all that stuff. But then he started to switch his videos and do these challenges and these games where he'd like go randomly into a Best Buy or go to a car lot and say in Best Buy, he'd go in and he'd cover a piece of you know tape on the ground that's a circle and then bring some random person over and say, hey, pull up this. And then anything you can fit into the circle in the next five minutes, you get. 
right? So then you have people running around the store, crying all over the place, like sticking, you know, TVs and all kinds of these electronics, and then he'll give it to them for free. So he started creating this kind of giving, 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 giving thing, right? Running challenges and games for it. He has 89 million subscribers now. <laughs> wow. Wow. He's making four to seven million a month just in the monetization of YouTube. That doesn't account for anything else he's doing, which is probably more than that. So now what he's doing is giving him like a million dollars away. Yeah. Like randomly. No like way. He'll go, he'll go give somebody a house for free. Like he just ran a challenge the other day for Christmas and he had five houses and he had five different teams. They all get to decorate a house and then they judge it. And whoever won the decoration contest won the house. Huh. They gave him a $400,000 house, gave him the keys and said, here you go. That's awesome. <laughs> I mean, you should have seen people who are like crying all over the places. And then of course, you know, it's kind of that abundance to give mindset. So not that we millions of that. people, that m- millions more people sign up for the YouTube channel. Oh, totally. You can see what happens is by giving free things and free this and free that, you're kind of bringing people in to this abundance to give mindset. So, so are you telling us that you're <laughs> the Mr. Beast as your guest on your podcast here? Coming oh my up? God, I would love it if we could. I mean, maybe if we're important enough at some point, he may, but I would love to interview him. <laughs> Because they're doing amazing things. There's a few other people as well. If we get to that chance to interview those guys, it would be incredible. Because what they're doing is actually, they're leaving an impact. And they're doing it genuinely, which is really cool. Awesome. Well, again, thanks for coming on our show. We really appreciate it. And Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Looking forward to connecting in the future and everything else too. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast on WIN, your community of investing knowledge for growth. We hope that this episode has increased your knowledge and added value to your path to freedom. If you would, please take a second to rate us so that we can get more great investors to interview. If you or someone that you know wants to be on, please visit westsideinvestors.com and fill out our form to be on the show. Thank you again and enjoy your day.